and I was like, and they were, like, they were showing like plastic tubs, like one had like spruce tips, another had mushrooms, another had birch bark, another had reindeer, another had fish. And I was like, a language of, it was like a vocabulary of, of ingredients. And the phrase, as I was sitting there, you know, like eating ice cream, <laughs> like 11 o'clock at night on a Tuesday, watching Netflix, the phrase, the language of seabirds dropped into my head, unquestioned. That sentence just went, hello. And immediately I had this image of a boy on a porch on the Oregon coast, watching another boy running by in the sand. And I knew he was sad and hopeful. Welcome to the 18th episode of Try Reading. You guys are going to love today's guest. Across from me on my screen is Will Taylor. Will is a reader, a writer, and a honeybee fan. He lives in the heart of downtown Seattle, surrounded by all of the seagulls and not quite too many teacups. When not writing, he can be found searching for the perfect bakery, talking to trees and parks, and completely losing his cool when he meets a long-haired dachshund. His books include Maggie and Abby's Never-Ending Pillow Fort, Maggie and Abby in the Shipwreck Treehouse, Slimed, Catch That Dog, and most recently, the book I absolutely obsessed over, The Language of Seabirds. I am so incredibly lucky to have Will joining me today. How are you, Will? I'm good. Thank you so much. That was so sweet. It's funny because people, when I wrote that, I didn't think about people having to read it out loud. And the part about teacups always trips people up. They're like, honeybee, like surrounded by seagulls and not, wait, not too many teacups. Okay, cool. And it's it's just like, I didn't, (laughs) yeah, you did a great job. That's what I'm saying. Oh, I'm glad. And I love that intro. Um, But you created and it's very perfect and fitting. Before I get into all of the questions, I always start the podcast with a question of what is your current read and whether you're currently reading something or you recently read something that you'd love to share, please feel free. Yes, Um, I am currently reading um, one of the most beautiful books I've read in a long time and it is Beating Heart Baby by Leo Min. It just came out, I think a couple of weeks ago, it's a YA. Uh, it just, it's heartbreaking. Like right from the first page, the writing is absolutely staggering. Um, it's, uh, about a couple of queer kids who meet and are in marching band and they have a lot going on in their world. It's, um, it's all over book talk and bookstagram. Everyone's, it's one of the ones that everyone's talking about. It's got that gorgeous pink cover. So yes, beating heart baby cannot recommend enough. I'm only a third of the way in and I'm completely smitten. So yes, that's the big one right now. Wow. I've seen it everywhere and I, it surpasses yeah. that. It's so Oh my good. gosh. Well, I love books that like within, within a, like a paragraph. You're like, oh, I'm in good hands. This of is course. They're just almost instantaneous. Just like, I need to spend the rest of my life with these people. This is everything I ever wanted. So, Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, now I'm going to have to go read that. I am currently reading. I just started The Unhoneymooners by Christina Lauren. And um, it's fake dating. It's a very like summary romance. And I've had it recommended to me by multiple bookstagrammers on this podcast. And so finally, I was like, you know, it's summer. I want something light. And so why not? And I love it so far. It's, you know, I'm only at the very beginning, but I'm enjoying it a lot. When did you start loving books and reading? Oh, uh, for me, I mean, third grade is when I really started noticing that 
it wasn't something that all my friends were into in quite the same way. I think that's, it's not so much that like, I think for me, it was when I noticed that it was a little bit different from some people that some of my friends really just didn't have the same like immersive, immersive feeling when they read that I got. And so for me, reading was more fun than TV or movies or anything else. Cause it was so just encompassing. I mean, it was there, almost like reading rainbow like style of like you've fallen through the book and now you're experiencing it in real time. And so, yeah, third, third grade and really third through seventh grade were my solid heavy reading years for me, which is honestly why I write middle grade now, because that's when those books that transformed my life came across. And I'm totally tangenting already, but this is one of the things that I love writing middle grade is it's when kids tend to start reading books that their parents haven't read or that their friends may not have read yet. And so it's this access to these entire worlds that the grownups in particular around you don't know anything about. Like, I really remember that with my friends and we all started reading like the Redwall series when I was in like third, fourth grade. And we talk about it all the time and grownups be like, what are you talking about? Like, you don't even know. And then the same thing happened like with Robert Jordan in middle school and stuff. And just that expansion of your interior world that books can bring about when you're around that age is so powerful. Um, and I've just never stopped wanting that feeling, which is why I kept reading middle grade into adulthood and, and write it today. I totally get that realization of knowing that not everyone loves to read the way you do. And so that's very true. You mentioned a few books like Redwall, and, um, but did you have a specific book that you loved growing up or maybe a specific author? I was definitely obsessed with the Brian Jacques books when I was younger, the Redwall series. Um, Ursula K. Le Guin was the first author who I really had one of those just sort of like brain exploding moments with. Uh, it was a Wizard of Earthsea. I was really into like castles and magic and anything along those lines, but it was a Wizard of Earthsea because it's at the beginning, at least it's about a, a boy. It's about a nine-year-old, 10-year-old kid who stumbles into magic discovers that it's very dangerous and has to go off to wizard school to learn how to use it i mean that's this was written in the in like what 68 71 somewhere in there like really you know decades before a certain other wizard school book and it was so amazing to think of being able to find that you have a secret power and then get to go get better at it and so as a kid it just i mean it was everything i wanted as as a awkward reader loner unpopular fifth grader I had, so it's just our fourth grader even I was just like this is what I want to do with my life is grow up and be a wizard and live on an island and like go on adventures and so I didn't realize until I got older that Ursula K. Le Guin is, is considered one of the finest stylists in the English language she's an absolute legend you know her she's won every award she she's she's passed on now but she I mean she is one of the the grand writers in the English language of the last hundred years and reading her as a 10 year old and then rereading re those books every few years into adulthood. It's just, I'm so lucky that I came across her at a young age because I think that had a profound impact on me that I was, you know, absorbing more than I knew. Well, books can be very transform transformative yeah. and transportational For in sure. so many ways. What led you to become an author? What, you know, when did you really, no, that's what you wanted to do. Ooh, man. So I kind of had, this is going to sound weird. I had some parental pressure to be, to be a writer from an early age that I resisted because I didn't want to be told who to be. 
Um, and we could probably pick that apart with, I was in the closet for a very long time as well. And I think I was resisting anybody trying to define who I was before. I didn't come out till I was 24. And I think I was really trying to resist anybody telling me how I should be in the world when they didn't have all the information that I did. So that could be a whole hour in itself, but let's, um, I, I resisted being a writer and I even went to like a writing heavy college where we did writing instead of grading. Um, I had to write like a long paper and self-reflection at the end of every class. And it was, you know, we wrote constantly, but I never thought of it as a potential, um, career path, uh, so I went from college straight into food service and retail and did that for, for most of my, most of my twenties and into my thirties and was finally like, you need to just try. I just had a day and it was kind of a similar experience of, um, back in third grade when I realized that most of my grown up, my now grown up friends didn't read kids books anymore. And I did still, and that weirded me out. I was like, wait a minute, isn't everyone obsessed with kid lit? isn't like, I genuinely believe like every single person would want to do this for a career. They just didn't think of it or they didn't think they could. And it, it, it was just like, you know, in my late, late twenties, I was meeting a lot of different people and, and like going to their houses and be like, where are the kids books? I didn't understand. She like genuinely. And it was like, oh, this is your thing. And that you're allowed to be really, really into it. And so I, I was, um, what year was it? It was 2010. Actually, I remember it very specifically. I was 28 years old, 2010. And I was like, I think I need to try this. I need to give it a go. I need to find out if this is something I can do because I'm still pretty obsessed with it. And if there's even a shot, I don't really know what else I would do with myself. So I started writing with the hope of someday getting published. In January 1st, I sat down and was like, I'm going to write a book this year. And and did and it was so bad but I started you know I started I got my feet on the road and it's and here I am so 12 years later right look at you now you know it, it just it just takes starting out but it was that realization back to the just to like loop our conversation together it was exactly the same as third grade of realizing that this was for me like an extra level of interest and obsession and, and frankly passion like I just still to this day have the same reaction to middle grade as I did when I was 10 it still hits me the same way. I still think, I mean, honestly, I think it's the highest form of literature and I am not exaggerating. I have friends who, who like write like grown up books, like literary fiction. And I always like, I'm not, oh man, I'm gonna regret saying this. I almost like, I feel a little sorry for them because it's an amazing art form. And obviously, you know, some of those gorgeous literature is done by grownups for grownups, but there's just so much magic available in middle grade and kid lit. And they include YA, of course. Like, it's just, you can do, it's that reading rainbow feeling again. You can be anything. You can go anywhere. And it's, I just wouldn't want to, I mean, I don't know. Again, you can hear it in my voice. I'm clearly, this is my thing. I don't have a choice. Right. And well, I think also, like you said, there is so much and so many ways you can go with middle grade and kid lit. Mm -hmm. And I haven't read a lot of middle grade novels recently. I mean, this year I've read much more than I have in the past but looking back at because I still have a bunch of my middle grade novels and I still love to look through them and I think it's just so interesting seeing the contrast and how like oh my gosh I had so much fun reading these books and I there were there's such a variety of stories 
It's been interesting with Seabirds because it's became it's getting me a little bit of crossover attention with YA since it's an upper middle grade. Um, definitely getting this is the first time people who have come up being like, I never read middle grade, but I liked yours. And for me, as an almost exclusive middle grade reader, that's been really like, ooh, interesting, interesting. I should read more YA because that sounds like there might be more for me, for me there as well, which is exciting. Right. I read maybe, maybe 15, 20% of my reading every year is, is YA. And, you know, easily 70, 70% is middle grade. And then like a little 5% of like grown up books on the side. Just to right. Have something to balance. And I bet it helps to read what you write, you know, read the oh, genre that you write. And, and my friends are all middle grade authors now and we read each other's work, you know, yeah. But I just love, it's, it's again, like it's an unending source of excitement. And like you said, it's just fun. They're super yeah. fun. Frankly, they're usually a little bit shorter so I can read more of them. And kind right, of, it's, it's true. Like, I can get through that pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, what was your first published novel? First published novel was Maggie and Abby's Neverending Pillow Fort was Harper Collins came out in 2018. Um, and yeah, that was, that was really fun. That was a fun project. I, I, I had to start that book over about four times, I think total um, blank page, white, white surface with one cursor blinking at you Start it again, buddy, try again. Um, it took me seven, about three years total to nail it down. Um, and then I had nine months to write the sequel. So <laughs> that was a journey, which turned out wow. to be 20, uh, 20% longer than the first book because I decided to do a dual narrative for the first time because I thought it would be easy and I was wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, that book, it's, uh, it's a classic sort of uh, through the looking glass romp, uh, two best friends uh, who've been separated by summer camp. One got to go and the other had to stay home which is the source of their friendship troubles throughout the book. Cause one of them is, you know, they've grown differently and it's, they have missed out on the shared experience. Um, but the whole hook is that they build pillow forts. Uh, there is a sort of mildly magical reason why they end up linking up. So you just crawl into your pillow fort in your bedroom, move one of the pillows and you can crawl straight through into your friend's pillow fort across town. Uh, so the kids basically have like a secret network of they can go wherever they want. So long as there's a pillow fort there. Uh, your parents think you're just playing in your room, but you're actually, you know, in another state, another country, maybe. Uh, and the whole hook is that they, they, they're having fun with this. It's rebuilding their friendship because they have this cool thing, but then they get in trouble when uh, they find out that there is already a massive pillow fort network and the kids who run it are angry at them because they've been breaking rules. So they have three days to do a, you know, do a task or they get cut off from the networks. And of course, everything goes wrong disasters happen it was super fun to write because it's it's such a tangled concept but also really simple but um yeah I, I, I'm, I'm really proud of that one I, it was kind yeah. of a quiet book, and then the second book was the same thing but I brought in tree houses magic tree houses get involved too because I was like what's next you know now my readers are like 13 14 maybe they want something a little bit you know a little bit more mature than than pillow forts and living rooms right but I mostly yeah, well, wrote comedy, I guess. I should, that's important. I was mostly a comedy, quirky comedy, middle grade writer. <laughs> that would be definitely my childhood dream of like being able to go through different pillow force. Like that would be the only thing I would want. Yeah. <laughs> well, when it published and through that process and, you know, then it was sold, what was that experience like for you? It was interesting. Um it's never like you think it's going to be. It was very exciting initially. Um, 
I seemed like I was, it felt like I was getting a lot of support from my publisher. And then the book came out and, and that felt like it stopped. There was a, there was a bit of a um, looking around and realizing you're the only person left at the party feeling, which I think was probably largely due to my inexperience and uh, misunderstandings of how the industry actually works. I, I, I had a lot of assumptions and a lot of things I needed to learn. Um, I, I, I'm always sort of, I wanna be careful about how I talk about, I don't wanna use the word disappointed, but I will say surprised because I definitely have massive amounts of privilege going in that allowed me to get published at all. Um, it only took six years when I, from when I started writing to getting an agent and then less than a year after that, a book deal. So that's really fast. And I am deeply grateful for that. And of course, you know, absolutely acknowledge that this was easier for me than for most people. Um, but there, that does, there are still surprises, I guess, along the way. And I think one thing that, I think there could be more mentoring in publishing for people for their first book to set up reasonable expectations. <laughs> because it's an industry that really thrives on, on a lot like Hollywood, creating an expectation of wild success. And that doesn't happen for 99% of authors. And so it creates almost an unnecessary type of disappointment that could be easily avoided, which is more realistic. Like, here's what's actually going to happen, or here's what's, here's what's likely. And if you do better, that's awesome. But if you don't, you're not feeling wrong-footed, I guess. Um, one one difficulty was during that whole time process, I had a full-time day job with a very erratic schedule that I couldn't control. So I wasn't able to do much in the way of um, school visits and reader reach out and sort of the sort of um, the whole second job you have as an author of self-promotion. It really wasn't fitting into my, my daily life that I needed to do to pay the rent. So I was in a bit of a, um, well, I mean, most authors have day jobs, but it, the particulars of this one made it, um, harder than I thought to get an audience to start being interested in my work. And I'm gonna stop there because I feel like I'm, I'm just re recircling the same ground. It's an interesting industry, I'll put it that way. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be a part of it because of readers and because of getting to work with kids. But the industry, the capitalism side of things is a, is a curious one. It's always so interesting and fun to hear from each author's perspective of their experience with the publishing industry. And for me, yeah. um, as an outsider, it's so interesting to see because I obviously don't see 90% of it. I only see this 10% that's like what the outcome is and from what I hear. And, you know, I do see that it's just this, I mean, from my perspective, it's like this big web and there's all this stuff going on in the inside and um, but thank you for sharing. That was, it was a good answer though. Not was long at all. Thank you. Cause I've given, so I've had this experience in the past when I did my first interview about like the path to pub that people were really interested in as a debut. I gave a kind of a rosy version of it of like, oh, I just did the thing and it worked and it was great. And I'm really grateful. And I got some feedback that it wasn't very helpful for people who were really struggling in the query trenches as they call it to like hear that it was easy for anyone. So I was like, oh, cool. That's actually a really good point. So the next time I kind of talked about the difficult parts more and I got the feedback that it wasn't helpful <laughs> to give people a bad idea. So I'm always a little bit like, I'm not sure. 
So I just tried to be straightforwardly honest. Like I'm very, very grateful. Parts of it were really easy. Parts of it were really hard. And that I feel like I can settle on. Right. And it was really fun, but also it was really difficult. So, Well, in October of 2021, Slime, a novel that you wrote Mm -hmm. under a pen name, published. And what made you choose to write under a pen name? That, so that has been something people ask all the time and it never occurred to me that it might be considered weird or like unusual. It was, um, so that's um, a project I did for Scholastic and IP. So it's their, their book idea. And I just put in a bid to be the author who wrote it. And they had basically like a two paragraph synopsis and I pitched uh, sample chapters and a, a longer synopsis. And they were like, cool, this seems like it'll work. Here's, you know, here's the, the mid and it's pretty much just for the book fairs for the most part, you know, it's a, it's a trade paperback. It's, it's a smaller, it's $5 or seven. Um, it's a smaller print run. It's a lot of things where it's, it's not meant to be sort of like, a, you know, top shelf book in particular ways. Um, and I thought it would be really fun to try and set up a second sort of author brand. I'm doing air quotes for the audience um, about just for the book fairs. And get to do a bit more of this sort of like goosebumps level, silly, almost kind of like borderline scary, horror slightly, slightly horror, not like horror, but like, you know, kind of monsters and goosebumps um, brand. Because actually one of my, my best friend uh, is an author for Scholastic and he has his sort of YA middle grade hardcover books, his big brand. And then he also writes for the Scholastic book fairs under a pen name. And has done really, really well. So I had an example of someone who, for whom that had worked really well, because he doesn't want the, you know, he doesn't want fourth graders reading his YA books. So it was a way to separate older kid content from younger kid content in terms of discoverability um, until the kids were at an age where that would be okay. And so I was, I do have some YAs I'm working on and, and older projects I'd like to do someday. So I had kind of a similar idea that it would be good to separate, to create an alternate channel for work at this stage. Um, unfortunately, so it looks like that might be the only book coming out under that name now. So it might've been a waste of time, but it was fun to try. It was fun. I had a blast writing that book. That came, that was, that took two months because it was so, I mean, I just sat down in the story. I mean, I was given a synopsis to run write from. So that helped a lot. But as soon as I sat down, it was just like watching goosebumps. I was like, I know what happens. Of course I know what happens next. We need an evil scientist and we need a secret lab book hidden in the attic with a recipe saying, do not make danger. So we need two fourth graders who need a science project or they'll fail school. So they make the project and it turns, you know, it's like it writes itself. Once you get everything in trouble and all the grownups are turning into slime zombies, <laughs> that's I mean, you have to make a new slime to turn them back. That's obvious. And then you need a dog from the neighborhood to help because you need a, an animal. At some point you need a pet. And it just, it was, a, it was a joy. So I do hope I get to do more Liam Gray books at some point because they're, it was fun. It was really fun. It's actually selling really well too. Wow. Which is nice. Yeah, like kind of better than my others. So. Well, I'm glad it was exciting. And for you, did you notice a distinct difference or even a small difference in writing as you, Will Taylor, compared to writing as Liam Gray, whether in the writing process, the mm-hmm. publishing, I know you mentioned the selling briefly but yeah I I guess I did a little bit using the name because so the 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 name Liam Gray Liam is just the second half of William it's just it's Will Liam that's the name so the Liam is one of my names I consider it's it's still it's mine I use it sometimes when I don't want to bother 
um, or I just feel like it. It's just like a slight. So I already had kind of a little bit of an alternate persona with Liam. Uh, gray is just my eye color. So it, it's still me, but it, I guess it does kind of feel fun. Yeah, it, I, when I was writing it, it did, it did feel slightly different. Like I was writing in an accent almost. Um, this is an, an editing trick someone taught me when you need to really, really edit your work and you're feeling a little too personal and close about it. This person, she was like, honey, just do what I do. Go to the top, delete your name from under the title and write Neil Gaiman. And now edit Neil Gaiman, like tell him what he's doing wrong. And I was like, actually, I can do that. They're like someone or someone you would like, you admire, but you would feel like if, if they had written this, you would have some opinions. So like distancing yourself from the content on the page does create a bit more of that, um, I, I guess a, a stronger editor brain. So that might've been working in my favor for Liam Gray as well, where it felt like, like one step to the side, someone else's work that I was getting to, to help with. I don't know yeah. about everybody for my brain. I, it seems like just talking to you, you're helping me figure it out. Actually, <laughs> I want to try that now because that seems like it could be really interesting, and yeah, seeing it through a different lens. Her recommendation, honestly, was pick someone you dislike strongly, because then you feel comfortable <laughs> tearing it apart. And I was like, right, okay. Or she's like, or really inspired by, and then you, right. can, this isn't up to their usual standard. And then you, because you're comparing the work to them now, not to yourself. And it creates a whole different frame and it's still the same work, but your mental, you know, it's like, um, in a video game as far as like, are you in the first person perspective or are you looking down from above changes everything? Yeah. Right. Well, your fourth novel, catch that dog, which was inspired by a true story, um, released just recently. And what was that like taking a true story and then turning it into a middle grade novel. Uh, this one was pretty, I mean, it, it, the true story is so wild in and of itself. I mean, just for a quick synopsis. So in 19, the 1950s, uh, poodles were a really big deal, like poodle skirts everyone's familiar with. And a lot of the driving force behind that was this guy called uh, Alexei Pulaski, who claims to be a count who had escaped Russia at the beginning of the revolution. Uh, no one knew if that was true but he had worked his way into New York high society and he had money and he had a lot of powerful friends and he was obsessed with poodles and he opened a poodle shop on fifth Avenue and started making everyone else obsessed with poodles too. He, he was like, my, he made poodles the must have fashion accessory. If you had the, the, the money and the, the glamour, you got a poodle. That's what you did because of him. And his favorite poodle of all time was his little dog called masterpiece toy poodle. He was only eight pounds like just over a foot high, just this tiny little thing. Um, Count Pulaski adored him. He thought he was the most perfect being on earth. And this poodle had its own bank account. It dined at the Ritz. It uh, got a goodwill medal as an ambassador to Haiti. Uh, it had a, it led a parade up Fifth Avenue in New York, charged $25 an hour for modeling fees in the 1950s. So like way more, you know, I don't get paid Yeah. That. Like 25 bucks an hour is barely a living wage, but it's, you know, like, dang. Um, and uh, he, after, so Prince Ali Khan tried to buy him when he was trying to get the actress Rita Hayworth to marry him. He wanted to buy this poodle as a gift uh, for like an extraordinary amount of money, like thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, and Count Pulaski was like, no, he's the perfect creature. I will never sell him. But after that, newspapers started calling him the most valuable dog on, 
on earth. He was just like, he's, this is the most valuable dog on the planet, hands down. And one day in 1953, he disappeared, just vanished. He always hung out in the front window of Poodle's Inc. He had his own little spot on his own pillow. And one day he just wasn't there. And only one witness ever came forward to say that he'd seen Masterpiece trotting out, no leash or anything, just happily happy this can be, at the heels of a woman with brown hair wearing a red coat. And he was never seen again. There, there was a 13 uh, state police search, uh, national like, headlines across the world. This was a big story for months. Uh, he was never found. He was eight years wow. old. Yeah. And uh, that's where, that's what we know. That's it. That's the end. And so I was like, well, clearly someone needs to write what happens next. And so my story, it was super fun to write because I was like, this is a dog that's been used to the high life. This is a dog who's literally dined at the Ritz with the president of France. He's been in Vogue magazine. You know, he's, he's been treated like a, like a God every day of his life. He's only hung out with the rich and famous. He's flown on you know, private jets. This is like in the early fifties, like the fanciest dog in the world. So I was like, where could he go? That would be a contrast to that. So I started the story with him trapped under a pile of garbage in an alley in small town, New Jersey. <laughs> and he meets the poorest girl in town who lives, who, whose family runs the shop next to the alley at like, and she's, she needs a friend and he needs to find out about the world. And so there's these, it's a classic odd couple where she has big dreams of a big city life and he has come from that and they learn from each other about what's actually good and, you know, they find a happy ending and the dog learns all these lessons about what actually matters in life versus what doesn't. And she, she learns about the, the importance of being a good person versus being a fancy person. You know, it's, it's kind of a classic, like old fashioned story in the end. That was a long answer again, but that's what I couldn't like when you find a story that doesn't have an ending yet as an author, you just grab on it. <laughs> You're not going to give that up. Like that's mine. That was not, a long answer I was I love that story and I was so, so much right. intrigued so already like yeah already there in the world and but there's I mean, you can see pictures of Masterpiece he's kind of a funny looking little guy but I mean <laughs> it's all it's these like black and white photos of him at fancy parties with people in tuxedos I'm like what is happening it's crazy yeah. well that's so exciting that you were yeah. able to take this true story about a dog and write what happens next and but it was my fourth um, comedy too which was fun because I, I describe it as like a comedy version of because of when dixie because it is a classic girl and her dog story but i was like i was still like writing comedies at this point because that that just sort of came naturally to me it's what i i really enjoyed even if it is like a heart wrencher at the same time like there's a lot of big emotions in this book it's it's a comedy it's a romp the grown-ups are all like very silly right and everybody wants to read about a dog so well, yeah, that's the thing. I sat down at the beginning and made a list of like, okay, what do you, when you pick up a dog book, what do you want to experience? And I was like, you need like the teary moment, the funny moment, the hug the book to your heart moment, the squeeze, you know, you need, you need all of the feelings that a pet gives you and you need to know that every time you read it, they'll still be there. So that was fun to kind of like check them off to be like, where's the cry moment? <laughs> right. Yeah. The Language of Seabirds, which is your fifth one. book. Yes. yes. And it's a book that, you know, now as, as someone who reads mainly YA and adult books and who's in the later part of high school, I really wish I had that book in middle school. And it's 
it's a sweet and tender middle grade story of two boys who find first love with each other and it's all over this seaside summer and so the main character Jeremy is not excited about the prospect of spending the summer with his dad in the seaside cabin of Oregon that he's staying in and it's the first summer after his parents divorce and he hasn't been exactly seeking alone time with his dad and so he doesn't have a choice though so he goes and on his first day he takes a walk on the beach and finds himself intrigued by a boy his age running by eventually he and runner boy Evan meet and what starts out as a friendship blooms into something neither boy expected and it's something that both of the boys had been secretly hoping for and I was so kindly gifted an arc from a guest on a past episode on this podcast and I finished it within 24 hours I was like I was like 1 a.m I was like finishing it and it just made me so happy and I truly I loved it so much and the listeners might remember me talking about it on an episode or two a while ago I started it and I was very excited because I hadn't read middle grade in a while and then I finished it and I was like oh my gosh it made me so happy so I guess my question for you after that long description is what was the inspiration for this book well thank you for doing the description because I always forget to talk about what the books are about for people who haven't read them yet um this is the book Okay, so I'm going to start with how the idea found me, because I think that's actually kind of a fun story. Um, I was watching a documentary on Netflix about Noma, the mm. restaurant in uh, Denmark, that it was the number one restaurant in the world, the ones that kind of created like new, new Nordic cuisine. Um, and the main chef, who actually sounds like kind of, I don't know, I didn't like him as a person <laughs> based on the documentary, but he was he was like trying to build he called it, um, so there, the whole thing is that they only used foods found in the Nordic region, in like the Arctic Circle, basically, uh, and, you know, a bit below, um, in order to like, just try and highlight the food of, of that part of the world. And he said, in order to do that, we had to go out into the countryside and start collecting ingredients. We had to find out what was actually available, where it was available, find people who could get it for us. And we, bit by bit, started to build an alphabet of local ingredients from which we could write a language of Nordic cuisine in order to create the poetry of the meals. And I was like, and they were, like, they were showing like plastic tubs that like one had like spruce tips, another had mushrooms, another had birch bark, another had reindeer, another had fish. And I was like, a language of, it was like a vocabulary of, of ingredients. And the phrase, as I was sitting there, you know, like eating ice cream, <laughs> like 11 o'clock at night on a Tuesday, watching Netflix, the phrase, the language of seabirds dropped into my head, unquestioned. That sentence just went, hello. And immediately I had this image of a boy on a porch on the Oregon coast, watching another boy running by in the sand. And I knew he was sad and hopeful. And those were the two little pieces that just, as, as an author, you start to, you learn to pay attention when something drops into your brain, like feeling like a complete gift. And I was like, I don't know what this book is about, but I need to write this down. And so I just wrote down those two things, the phrase, the language of seabirds, and then that brief description. And about a week later, I was emailing uh, next project ideas to my agent. Um, I have hundreds of book ideas in like baby form. 
like I have more than I will ever be able to write. And my agent is very, very good at helping me sort of sort through them to be like, yes, no, 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 definitely not. You can do that for yourself, but I'm never going to be able to sell that. You know, they're mostly, they're not there. Um, so I had sent him like 15 book ideas and I had like multi-page synopses and I had all these, like, I love this idea and this is why I love this and this is why. And then at the very end, I was just like, I don't know what this is about, but this is an idea that came into my brain. And I tacked it on right at the very end. It was like, language of seabirds, beachside, two boys, summer, maybe a romance. And he wrote back the next day to be like, congratulations on all the other ones, but you're writing seabirds. He was like, that's what you're doing. This is no question. He's like, I got chills when I read that sentence. This is what you're doing. I was like, okay, okay. And like we talked about, I always write comedies. I always write silly, usually magic. There's some kind of magic. Like the first two are about magic pillow forts. Slimed is about zombies made of magic slime, essentially. Uh, Catch That Dog is first person dog perspective for half the book. You know, it's not magic, but we're in the point of view of a, of a poodle uh, running around New Jersey. Like this is this is not, and it's a comedy again. Like, so the idea of writing a book about emotions and about two people having emotions was so scary. It took me like three years to write this book, Gabriel. I did not know, I didn't know how to start. I just was like, so what, people just walk around having emotions and then they do stuff? Like, what do you do? Like, what's, you know, like, what's the hook? What's the, the timing? Um, so I ended up using a lot of like devices like you probably noticed it's framed around, it's two weeks on the Oregon coast. So I was like, cool, that contains the story that limits me. And I know I'm using the 4th of July as the midpoint. So that's like, like a celebration point with sort of expectations of what should happen, but also a big night for anybody. I was like, good, I can, okay, I can, I can work around that. If I want this to happen by 4th of July, then I know by chapter four, kind of framing it out really, really uh, was essential for me to be able to find out how people's emotions just sort of naturally would unfold um, in this in-between space. And I've already forgotten the main question that you asked me at the beginning of this. I think what was so interesting is that, you know, the title popped into your head and it was this inspiration from a Netflix documentary. And then you were able to completely have this story and now look at it. I mean, yeah, so you did, you answered the question. But I remembered the second half. Sorry, that was it. No, um, go ahead. The That was like the inspiration for the sort of the concept of the book. But then once I got into it, the inspiration was wanting to write the early romance that I didn't get to have. And this is in the author's note in the book, at the back of the book, where I talk about when I had my first crush when I was 12, it was immediately followed by fear. Like, I remember feeling like, oh, these are amazing feelings. What am I feeling? This is, and realizing like, is this you know, a crush is this love at that age. You're sort of like, I don't know what is happening to me in my brain right now, but this feels really good. And then I immediately realized, oh no, this is a crush on a boy. And this wave of fear, like visceral fear swept over me of like, I have to keep this hidden. I have to tamp this down. And I, I you know, from the age of like 12 on, I practiced ignoring those feelings and turning them off because it was so scary. And I will say from the age of 40, I'm still trying to undo that damage because I got really good at it. And I think a lot of kids do get really good at suppressing or at least learning to associate when you're, when you're queer attraction with fear. And that is so sad that so many of us at that young age learn to sort of almost self-harm that way because it's not safe or because even just knowing it's not entirely safe to be queer at a young age, even if it's not physically unsafe, it's socially unsafe. It means a lot at those at, during that time. And 
So this book, once I got into it, I was like, I want to write almost a fairy tale version where I don't have to have the fear win, where I get to see a character really go for it and be like, this is what I feel. And they're in this in-between space of this two weeks on the coast, which is like, that's one of the themes of the book is being in between. He's in between two versions of his family. He's in between school years. He's in between um, the ocean and the land because they're right on the beach. Uh, and that in-between space provides an opportunity to see what it would be like to go the other way. And so that became kind of the, the heart of it for me was I want to, to give readers and, and kids today an example of even just an imagined version of that same moment I had going well and going in a positive way that taught Jeremy to be like, no, these are good feelings and you can encourage them. And, and that, that became super important for me. And the thing that I've gotten the most feedback on is like, it's just a hopeful retelling just to have it available to even conceive of. Cause I was, you know, I, what was it? 1995, 94, when I was having these crushes and it just, there was nothing that told me that this was gonna be okay. There was not one book on the shelf that I could have turned to and been like, no, it's cool. I'll be fine. This is good. It was, it was just silence. And then I stayed silent because that's all I could see. So I'm very, I'm so grateful to have this, to have this, um, almost to like retroactively fix that in a way, because it helped me writing it so much just to find out that I had this. I mean, I didn't get to experience this at that age, but I had an awareness that this is what I needed. It's like the example. You don't have to do it. You don't have to have a crush. You don't have to have, you don't even have to hold hands or do anything with anyone else, but just knowing that it's possible changes everything. It truly is. Yeah, it truly is such a beautiful book. And I think I, like I said before, I really, I really do wish I had it in middle school. And I know, you know, that's what you said in the author's note. And if I could send this to my middle school self, Damn. I would. Um, because, you know, there were, truth be told, you know, when I was in middle school, the nice thing is there were more books hmm. that had LGBTQ characters and a cast of LGBTQ plus characters and relationships. But um, I don't think I really started reading those books until after eighth grade. Hmm. And so it was, yeah, it was a really good book. And um, yeah, I just, yeah. So thank you for writing it. <laughs> and um, I, I guess now that it's published and you went through this long process of writing it and now you can take a breather and like, um, how does it feel now that, that it's out and being sold? It feels amazing. It's, it's a little surreal. It, it's definitely getting more attention than any book I've done so far, um, which, is, which is awesome because it's the one I'm definitely the most proud of. Like I, I put the most work in this took about three years to really get through everything. Like I said, because the, the writing was such a, a departure for me and uh, the, the story style. Um, but the feedback has been really positive and almost surprising is the majority of people who've reached out to say how much they loved it were older straight people. Um, I guess it's, a lot of like so far just a lot of librarians and booksellers have read it because they got the advanced copies so that could account for quite a bit of it but so many of them have said I connected so much with the characters and that's been such a surprise for me because it, it's such for me it's a very very particular book about being a, a queer boy at a certain age 
And yet somehow the more specific I got, the more universal it seems people have been connecting with that experience of, of being stuck and wanting to change how you are in the world in order to go towards something that seems like a positive to you. Like a lot of the book is about Jeremy trying to get out from behind this glass wall that he's built to keep himself safe and to take a risk. And I, again, thought this was such a specific, almost niche thing. And everyone's been like, no, I've totally had the same feelings. And it's like, okay, cool. 60 year old white lady at my library. That's great. <laughs> Mother of five. Cool. That's rad. I'm very pleased connected with this 12 year old boy and his divorced father. Interesting. Cool. That's, I mean, that's been a great thing. And of course with school starting up, I mean, I'm really hoping I don't know how it's going to do in schools as far as like classroom reads because it is it's a queer romance and I the, the world being the way it is right now that doesn't seem like a lot of classrooms are going to have room for that but I'm hoping um, to work with like a bunch of GSAs and sort of get you know the low smaller smaller audience but still working through schools um, for kids who need it so I'm excited about the potentials for the fall and winter hopefully this will get get kids on kids on board too and not just the grown-ups <laughs> reaching out about it although like we said like it for me as a 40 year old yeah it has helped me heal parts of my own past so I hope grown-ups can have the same you know the same reaction but it's just surreal when people like like your work because my other books have been pretty quiet for the most part like definitely not big sellers not a lot of attention haven't really you know not I'm not on panels or anything or doing a bunch of events so it's been like like people you've heard it what what <laughs> because three of these books too slimed catch that dog and say seabirds have all come out during the pandemic slimed was delayed by almost a full year it was supposed to come out in um early january of 2021 and it got bumped to mid-october so you know 10 months delay there seabirds and catch that dog were both delayed three times they were supposed to come out back in march and april and they just kept getting shifted forward um, into the heart of the summer so it's it's been a bit of a we never quite knew when they were coming out as we went along it kept changing so it feels nice like you said to have them all checked off and like okay it's all there now it's everyone else right turn. everybody read Go right yeah I got the book in late April and then mm -hmm. I saw you know it said whatever like May I think oh, it said like May 17th right yeah, yeah. And then I think I looked you up on Instagram and then I saw, you know, you had posted, you know, now, now it's this day and, mm -hmm. but it's the perfect either way, you know, May was so close to summer, but like it was the perfect summary read. And, you know, even though it obviously did take place during the summer and even though there's heavier parts to it, it was just, um, it, yeah, it was, it was a very fun summer read. I'm hoping it'll, yeah, hang on into the fall. It'll still feel good to be reading about early July. Yeah, I, okay. I do too. Yeah. Well, you very, very, very briefly mentioned this earlier, um, but would you ever write YA? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I am um, working on the outline for one right now. I've got two middle grade projects that I have to do next um, because they are burning holes in my brain and I'm very excited about them uh but then after that I have a YA I'm going back to comedy straight back to comedy it's a it's a murder mystery comedy musical oh my <laughs> it's, gosh it's that's it's, like 
Right. I took all my nerdy stuff because I did like I wasn't in the theater department, but I was I played French horn. So I was in the pit for all the orchestra, the musical shows. And I, I love musicals because, of course, and like I was just like, what would you like for a YA? I was like, I want to have fun. If I'm going to write a YA, I want it to be fun. And so I was like, just take all of your nerdiness and shove it into one book. So it's like it's it's a it's about a kid trying to write uh, a murder mystery musical for a senior project. And I'm not going to tell you there's a hook in there and I'm not going to share it because I'm precious that way. Um, and his, he has to do it in, so the whole hook is like, he's supposed to do it for the spring musical and this is the first day of school, but then there's a new theater director who hates him. And so now he has to do it for the fall music, for the fall play. So he's only got three months to write and put on a murder mystery musical. Um, and he has to end up casting like his ex-boyfriend as the lead because no one else can sing the part. And so there's stuff there and it's all queer, huge queer found family stuff. Um, but then there's like a murder mystery element where somebody is sabotaging the production and he has to figure out who it is by the time they put it on the show. So it's like a full mashup of just like complete nerddom. And that's like by the, that can give this way, but like by opening night, he still doesn't know who did it in the musical. So he has to find out too on stage with everyone else. So like for me as a writer, that's going to be so much fun because my main character doesn't even know the answer. So I don't have to know the answer. Right. So I can find out with the reader, like, oh, it turns out it was so-and-so. So I'm looking forward to that one. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Oh, my it, gosh. I really hope that, got, that got me so excited. So yeah. I'm really, I'm so excited. And um, yeah, musicals, murder mysteries, like, that's, oh, my I'm, gosh. I'm using all the same tricks I used on Seabirds as well, of, like, the framing device of, like, okay, you've got a limited time span. And I'm using Halloween as the midpoint. So it's kind of like got the full fall cozy vibes as well. Um, I mean, it's a ridiculous concept, but I was like, this is great. I can work with that. I do pillow fort stuff. I can do like a, a cozy murder mystery rom-com high school. Yeah. Right. Musical. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so excited. And I'm now I'm going to. Done by this time next year. I'm going to tell you now. I want this. So okay. Hopefully we'll have some announcements. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, if and fingers crossed, pretty sure when it's published and out, you know, it'd be fun to have you back on the podcast and talk about YA and oh my gosh, but I'm so excited now. (laughs) (laughs) And I need to, I'm trying to start telling people. So I have people hold me accountable (laughs) because the idea is about a year old and I've just been like, I'll get to you. I'll get to you, you know, but then these middle grades are like, no, you must (laughs) I don't know, story ideas are like, they're like cats. They just kind of hang around the house until they decide they want attention. And then they're just clawing at you <laughs> and meowing and says, like, I will get to you when I'm free. Exactly. For the language of seabirds, yes. um, knowing that it's your most recent, what do you hope readers will take away from the story? And I know you briefly said mm. a bit, but if there was one main thing that you hope they take away. I'm going to, I'm going to hedge a little, and it depends on who the reader is. For grownups, I hope they remember how complicated and intense life is when you're 12. And I, I, there is a lot of, people look down on middle grade, I think, because they think kids aren't having that much of an internal world at that point, because they're not necessarily in control of most of their own lives. But I think that makes it even stronger the amount that kids are doing inside themselves. And I hope grownups remember and and that they 
remember that when they're working with actual kids too. Like middle grade kids are rad. 11 year olds are amazing and they are doing so much and experiencing so much and changing so much and like on a day-to-day basis. And I hope adult readers remember how powerful those kids are at that age and how much of an impact carelessness from grownups can have on them. Because I think that's a lot of what I was showing with the, the difficult relationship with Jeremy's dad, just to share that for the audience. If you're unaware, there is quite a bit of a difficult relationship with his dad. His dad's going through a lot and not handling it well and taking it out on Jeremy. So it's, it's rough. And I think it's that inability to look at Jeremy and see him for who he is that causes that. And so I kind of want adult readers to be like, are you doing this with kids in your life? Maybe, you know, like, don't, don't forget, um, they're full human beings and they're experiencing as much as you, if not probably way more. Um, so that's what I hope adults, but younger readers um, and all queer readers of all ages, I hope will find a reflection of their own experience and a better outcome from a lot of shared experiences. Um, I tried to put in a lot of happy surprises throughout the book, like unexpected good things kept happening to Jeremy. And I, I didn't plan all of them. A lot of them, I was just writing along and I was like, oh, that's, oh, that's happy. I like that. That's nice. It's like finding $10 on the sidewalk. You're like, sweet, cool. That's, that's just these little boosts. Um, I think I said in the author's note, I hope it's like a roadmap or an example for anybody who needs one, who doesn't have that imagery already from somewhere else in their life of, of things going well for someone like them. That's the quick and easy that I should have started with. No, you gave a great answer and you were able to give, you know, both sides of adult readers and younger readers. And so thank you for sharing that. I hope it's not a lesson book. I do want to be clear about that. It's not like, a. No. here's why we should be respectful. No. <laughs> it's a no, story. It is foremost. It's entertaining. It, yeah, exactly. Well, I have to add in a few fun, one, two fun questions just because, um, but for you, my first question is, are you more of a Jeremy or an Evan? Oh, I'm a total Jeremy. That was straightforward from the start. Evan is like, he's a cinnamon roll. He's, he's, he's who I wanted to hang out with when I was that age. Actually, I'm not even a, a Jeremy. He's braver than I am. I noticed that right off the bat. I thought he was me. And he, a lot of his beginning was me. A lot of the beginning part was, was Jeremy, was me. But um, right when he makes some choices to do stuff on his own that I was like, look at you. I wouldn't do that at that age. I was way more careful and shy. And I always would, if I had a choice between safety and potential fun, I would always choose safety every time. Right. And Jeremy starts to change pretty fast. And I was, um, I was impressed by him for that. But if, I mean, if it's a either or, I am, yeah, 100% Jeremy. And what would you say your favorite seabird is, if you have one? Oh, no one's asked me that. Um, so this is actually kind of funny. I have been I have been mildly corrected that quite a few of the birds are actually shorebirds and not seabirds. And there's a difference apparently. So um, I didn't know. So. I didn't know either. I know. <laughs> I am. I'm going to hear about it, but I'm actually going to turn that into a fun like classroom exercise of like find all the things I did wrong and like tell me which ones are shorebirds and not seabirds, which is a great way to get kids, you know, like do the STEM. Um, uh, okay, I I genuinely just do love Western gulls. They are just like your classic sea, seagull, the screaming ones. For the reasons I laid out in the book is because they get to fly around because they have like the soar, they do a good soar. They're like an eagle soar, not like, you know, crows and a lot of other, they have to flap more. 
but the sea, the seagulls get the full, I'm doing it with my arms in the video. I'm winging my arms in the video for people. Um, they can soar, they can dive, uh, they can sit on water. So they're not scared of drowning. They're not scared of heights. I think it's because they don't seem scared of stuff, which is again, hey, going back to my little childhood self, that was aspirational. The idea of not being scared of water heights, which I was terrified of both. Um, I still can't swim. Like all these things that they just seem to be like, what? I'm going to walk around and be strange and annoying. Seagulls are definitely the weirdest or probably the worst option, but they're my favorite. Well, for me, it's official that I want to learn more about seabirds because I agree with your seagull the standard, like the Western goal. I can know that, but like some other ones, I need to learn more about the birds and then read the names and they'll have more meaning. But uh, Will, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, this was such an honor. This is my first podcast. So I... Oh, well, I'm so honored. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, that's, that's a very big honor. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your stories about your writing and all of it. Where can the listeners find you? Whether you want to say social media or website, whether it be one thing or three things, whatever you want to say. Yeah. Um, so social media or website is willtaylorbooks.com. Nice and easy. Uh, Will Taylor Books on TikTok. Uh, I am attempting to TikTok. It is fun. I am so awkward and I've embraced that as my brand. So that works just fine. Uh, I'm also on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Ink and Hive, which I will be changing to Will Taylor Books soon because no one knows what it means. Uh, so, and you can find all that through my website, willtaylorbooks.com. And there's also a Q&A on there and uh, downloadable reader guides and stuff. So, yeah. Wonderful. And as always, I will link those below and... Thank you to everyone for listening to this episode. And Thank you, listeners. Yes. And as always, episodes release every other Friday. You can find the podcast social media below. If you want to leave a review, and you can spread the word. It helps other listeners find the show and read these amazing books. And everyone, please go read The Language of Sea Words. So much. And Will, I had so much fun. This was beyond amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Gabriel.